You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabreeconference.com. Today's episode features Mary Frances Giles' lecture, What Does the Bible Have to Tell Us About Sexual Harassment? and Hashtag Me Too. Mary Frances is one of the workers at the Southboro Labrie branch. So just to give you a little bit of background of how I have come to this issue and where I'm speaking from, um, about a year and a half ago, so early uh, uh, January 2018, I was asked to speak on a panel, uh, a couple of panels actually at my church, I go to a large urban church in Boston, um, on the topic of sexual harassment. And I have a really dear friend, we've been friends for about 15 years, who also attends my church, and she, lucky for me, uh, is a criminologist. Uh, she has a PhD in sociology, uh, her name is Dr. Janice Free Newell, and um, She's a sociologist, but her area of expertise is criminal justice, and she teaches uh, sociology and criminology at a a small Catholic college in Boston. And the day before this first panel that I was speaking on at church, she and I happened to have lunch. It wasn't because of this. We had just already scheduled it. And so we just started talking about this topic, and I have – this is not an area of expertise for me at all, um, but we started talking about it. And it was obviously super helpful to talk with her. She's done some research and some work in this area of violence and assault, not just on women, but uh, all types of crime and violence. And uh, it was just a really helpful conversation. I thought, hmm, I think we might be onto something here. And so I uh, solicited her help, and we did a lecture together um, on this topic at Labrie last spring. Um, I'm just going to be totally honest and say I'm a little bit nervous of standing up here and doing this for you without her (laughs) next to me. Um, I am going to be primarily today talking about uh, just looking at this topic from a theological lens. Um, I'm going to just put my Janice hat on for a few minutes and talk to you, um, just give you some data and talk to you about some of the sociological perspectives as well. That is not in any way, shape, or form my area of expertise. I'm happy for people to ask me questions about that. I might be able to answer it. I might not. Um, But that's kind of how I got here. Um, Just to start, I want to say a couple things. Um, The first is um, I am going to make the assumption, based on statistics, that the majority of the women in this room, and maybe some of the men, have experienced sexual harassment, if not sexual assault, and if not rape in their lives. So I'm just, and so I want you to make that assumption as well, sitting in the room. Um, something just to keep in mind when we move to discussion as well, that this is a, a deeply, deeply personal issue for some people. Um, and we just want to be sensitive to that. Um, most women have a story about sexual harassment or sexual assault. I don't think I personally know uh, any women who don't have at least one story. And even if that means, you know, being catcalled on the street, which does count as sexual harassment. So if you want to put that on the benign end, um, all the way up to, um, to rape and violent sexual assault on the other end. 
I don't, that I know of, I don't know any women who don't have at least one story about that. However, most men that you talk to will say, that's not me. I've never done that before. So the math doesn't really add up on that. Um, Either a small group of men is doing all of the harassing and assaulting, or many men are doing things that either they're not admitting to um, or they're just unaware that they've crossed boundaries, that have been crossed. Um, 94% of rape and sexual assault victims are female, and 98% of perpetrators are male. So those are some pretty extreme numbers on both sides. Um, all of this talk with sexual harassment, I think, may seem new to some people because we, it has just been catapulted into the news and our collective consciousness in the last couple of years. I'm going to talk about why, kind of how we've gotten there. Um, but obviously, this is a tale as old as time. Sexual harassment and sexual assault um, have been part of the human story since almost the very beginning. If any of you were, Philip did an excellent workshop yesterday afternoon on sex and the body. So if any of you were in there, um, he did a really great history on even um, kind of ideas around sexuality in even in Roman times, so the times of Jesus' life in New Testament. Really horrifying, really fascinating stuff. So if you weren't there, I'd really encourage listening to that talk um, once, once, the t- once the recordings are released. Um, although I'll, I'm going to mostly be talking about women today because that's where the majority of the data and the research um, lies, but I do want to just acknowledge and put out there that there are a significant number of men who have been sexually harassed and sexually assaulted. Obviously, significant, significant numbers of children have been sexually harassed and assaulted. Um, and um, people of color, immigrants, people in the LGBTQ community, and economically disadvantaged peoples are all um, much more at risk of, of sexual harassment and assault as well. So, um, again, I'm not going to be talking a lot about that today, but I just want to acknowledge that and put that out there. Um, so, it, it's, as I said, it seems like this has just all come rushing forward all of a sudden in the last two years. So why now? Why, why, why are we here now? Um, 2017 was deemed the year of women. Um, 2017 started off with the Women's March in Washington, D.C. in January, on January 22nd of, uh, Jan- of 2017. And by the end of the year, by the end of the calendar year of 2017, the hashtag MeToo was just a household phrase. Um, but these things didn't just materialize out of thin air. So I'm just going to give you a, little, a brief history of kind of how we got to this cultural moment. Um, this may not be a surprise to some of you, but one of the real catalysts for getting this going was in October of 2016. If any of you guys remember, can think uh, what popped what popped into our collective consciousness at that point. It's a month before the presidential election, and Access Hollywood released a tape of then presidential nominee Donald Trump bragging about the vulgar ways that he sexually harassed women. Um, One thing I just want to point out to you as well is that he was not secretly recorded. He knew that there was a camera right in his face when he said that. So this was a very um, blatant admission, if you will. 
This open admission, coupled by the fact that so many political and conservative religious leaders continued to support him, as well as his subsequent election to the presidency, galvanized many women to take action. This primarily took the form of the Women's March, which I've already mentioned, um, <clears throat> which was held in Washington, D.C. the day after his inauguration. It's one of the largest public demonstrations in U.S. history of any type, um, and one of the stated goals of the Women's March was to send a bold message to our new government on their first day in office into the world that women's rights are human rights. Empowered by the voices of the voices and courage of other women, the Women's March set off a huge domino effect of women rising up to publicly call out the misogyny that they had been living with for so long. Uh, Susan Fowler, who was a former engineer at Uber, the car share, ride sharing company, um, was one of the first people to publicly speak out about um, the misogynistic culture um, at Uber, and especially with the top levels of top leadership. Um, that ultimately led to the firing of the Uber founder and CEO, Travis Kalanick, as well as two dozen other people at Uber. <clears throat> this is what she said. The second Trump won, I felt super powerless, and I thought, oh, my God, no one's looking out for us, she says. They have the House, they have the Senate, and they have the White House, and so we have to take it back ourselves. We have to be the ones doing the work. I think a lot of women felt that way. Over the course of 2017, the dominoes slowly began to fall of powerful men brought down by allegations of sexual assault. Um, Bill O'Reilly, who's an anchor at Fox, um, a little bit later, the comedian and actor Bill Cosby. Then in early um, October, two, excuse me, October of 2017, so almost a year after uh, Trump's Hollywood Access tape had come out, uh, the New York Times published a story revealing a long and systematic pattern of sexual harassment, assault, and rape against women, specifically against women, by film and media mogul Harvey Weinstein. On October 15th, so 10 days after the Weinstein story broke in the New York Times, a friend of the actress Alyssa Milano, <clears throat> that is her on your right, <clears throat> sent her a screenshot of the phrase, Me Too. Unbeknownst to Milano, the phrase had been coined 10 years earlier by Tarana Burke, on the left, who's an advocate for young and minority victims of sexual violence. Alyssa Milano that night tweeted, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write me too as a reply to this tweet, inviting others to share with the hashtag. She sent the tweet and she went to bed and she woke up the next morning to 30,000 posts. From there, Me Too exploded worldwide and a movement was born. Um, and at that point, the dominoes started falling much more rapidly. California farm workers took to the streets to bring awareness to the rampant sexual abuse present in their communities. Um, other big names uh, were brought down in Hollywood and businesses. Um, news anchor Charlie Rose, news anchor Matt Lauer, um, the actor and comedian Aziz Ansari, actor and comedian Louis C.K., Senator Al Franken, in addition to many other, just across a number of, of industries, technology, higher education, government, and more. Um, in November of that year, the hashtag church to 
um, emerged and had a similar overnight phenomenon. I'm going to talk a little bit more about Church 2 later. In December of 2017, Time Magazine, <clears throat> end of the year, named the silence breakers of the Me Too movement their person of the year. One thing I just want to point out really quickly is in the bottom corner here you see an elbow. It's been highlighted there. And um, at Time Magazine, they did that, photo- that photograph intentionally, um, and that elbow is meant to represent all of the women anonymous women who have felt who have been impacted by sexual harassment and assault um, but could never come forward for fear of all kinds of retribution about that. Um, in, in, excuse me, in January of 2018, uh, Time's Up is a movement and an organization um, that's, that was started for legislation and policy change around sexual harassment issues primarily in the workplace. Um, and then in, do I have this? Yeah. Then in May of 2018, Einstein was actually arrested. Uh, he was actually arrested the morning that Janice and I did this talk um, at, at Liberty, but he, he was arrested. Um, I have to keep looking at him. Um, other scandals, and no, so this was uh, a little over a year ago. There have been other scandals. Other notable men have gone down since then. Um, one of the most highly publicized was Larry Nasser, who was a physician uh, with the, uh, at Michigan State who oversaw the medical care of the U.S. women's gymnastics team. Um, there have been many, many more since then. Most recently in the news right now uh, is Jeffrey Epstein. You guys may have heard of him, this billionaire who um, has been charged with sex trafficking. People often say, why don't women speak up more about these things? Me Too has shown us that when women do speak up, very few people listen. The Harvey Weinstein scandal is an example of one man's systematic patterns of harassment and assault on women that was widely known, but just as widely ignored and shushed. Many men came forward saying that they had heard the rumors about him but did or said nothing. Many of the stories shared publicly in the wake of Me Too also had an element of threat. Men threatening all kinds of things if women exposed them, further physical and or sexual harm to the victim or to their loved ones, public humiliation, loss of jobs, loss of wages, or professional opportunities. We know this is often the case when children are assaulted as well. Power is a significant factor in sexual crimes. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later as well. Um, And as many women know, even minor harassment, um, again, I actually don't really want to call this minor, but for the sake, um, a cat call on the street or unwanted advances at a bar, many women know that those types of things can turn hostile and threatening pretty quickly when women push back. And this gets into the tricky issue of consent. We're at a place right now culturally where consent is the lowest common denominator as to whether something crossed a line or not, ethically or legally. But because of this atmosphere of threat, consent gets tricky. Women often engage in what men read as consensual behavior in order to keep situations from escalating to something more aggressive or violent. They smile or they laugh. They say, yeah, something's fine or no big deal when it isn't. Um, It's not saying yes, but it's not saying no. 
Um, as I was researching for this lecture, I stumbled across a really powerful quote from Margaret Atwood, the author of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, some of you may have read her book or seen her, the adaptation of that book on um, Hulu. She's written a number of other things as well. But I thought this was a really powerful, powerful quote. <clears throat> Why do men feel threatened by women? I asked a male friend of mine. They're afraid women will laugh at them, he said, undercut their worldview. Then I asked some women students in a poetry seminar I was giving, why do women feel threatened by men? They're afraid of being killed, they said. So I'm going to just share some statistics with you right now. Um, again, I'm borrowing heavily from my friend who researches in this area. I'm just going to do my best to explain it um, and uh, just to give you, I'm going to go through it pretty quickly, but just to give you an idea of some things. I don't want to dwell on this. Um, just to, for the sake of some just working definitions, um, sexual harassment is something that happens in a workplace or in public and includes making sexual gestures or displaying sexually aggressive objects, pictures, etc., to someone, using derogatory comments, epithets, slurs, or jokes of a sexual nature, verbal sexual advances or propositions, verbal abuse of a sexual nature, um, graphic commentaries about an individual's body, suggestive or obscene letters, notes, obviously that covers text, emails, things like that as well. So that's sexual harassment. Uh, much harder to sort of pin down what sexual harassment is, definitely legally as well. Um, sexual assault is an act on which a person sexually touches another person without that person's consent or coerces or physically forces a person to engage in a sexual act against their will. Obviously, rape would fall under the category of sexual assault. Um, and then consent. This is an interesting one. Consent is an ongoing, informed, non-coerced, non-threatened, sober, and verbal yes. Um, that's pretty definitive of what that is, right? Um, different states, I, I will tell you, have different uh, laws around consent, what covers consent. Um, I live in Massachusetts, and so I'm not familiar with Tennessee's laws, so I don't know what it is here. I can tell you in Massachusetts, um, even if someone verbally says yes, if they are under any influence of drugs or alcohol, it's not consent, even if they said yes. They don't have to be drunk. They don't have to be high. But if there's any drugs or alcohol in their system, even if they verbally say yes, it's not still not considered consent, regardless of what they say. Um, and I also know from Denise in her research that more liberal states, Massachusetts is one of those, we're a dark navy blue state, um, and proud of it, but uh, more liberal states, the liberal states tend to have the more conservative consent and laws around sexual harassment and assault more conservative states tend to have the more loose, liberal laws around consent and, uh, and assault and harassment. All right, just some statistics on these things. Um, this is specifically sexual assault and rape. There are almost no statistics on sexual harassment, almost none, because it's pretty much never reported. It's very hard to have it prosecuted, and so there's just actually very little data around harassment. Most women don't go to a police officer if someone catcalls them on the street or if a guy is pushy in a bar. Um, but for sexual assault and rape, 96% of victims know the perpetrator. 
75% of victims are a family member, an intimate, or acquaintance of the perpetrator. 70% of rapes and sexual assaults go unreported. And again, there's no data on sexual harassment. Approximately 3% of rapists are convicted, and 97% are not. Um, so you have to also realize that of that 3% that are convicted, that's 3% of the only 30% that are actually reported, right? So it's really low numbers. Um, and just some interesting, I thought super interesting statistics. Most sexual assaults are intra-racial. So that would mean white on white crime, black on black crime, you know. So, you know, we have uh, every, I'm just looking around really quickly, for, for, for those of us who are white or in a majority culture, you know, there's this idea of there's some big kind of racial myths, right, about like the black man who's going to, right, that's very, that's, those are rare. Um, just the statistics don't support that. Um, most sexual assaults, not surprising, involve drinking by the offenders, not necessarily the victim, because that's always the question to the victim, were you drinking, right? But um, drinking by the offenders. Um, most sexual assaults happen on weekends, at night, and in the summer. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later. Uh, we can actually pick this up more in the discussion if you want, but I think this is interesting. The statistic about why do you guys think that more, hap more sexual assaults happen in the summer? I know in crime... Um Violent crimes are escalated as the temperature, and property crimes are escalated and the temperature drops. Mm -hmm. And so because sexual assault is a violent crime, I could see that being part of the correlation. Yeah, yeah. And of course the clothing. With, okay. Um, yep. with, but yeah, it, there's more violence than the, the weather storm. When it's hot, yeah. Clothing, other ideas? There's more opportunities for social interaction. Yeah. There's more cases where people get together with people they kind of know. Yep, yep, yep. So you actually got it right there. So what most people say is clothing. Women are wearing less clothing in the summer. That's why there's more sexual assault and rape. The data actually doesn't support that at all. Again, we're going to come back to women's clothing a little bit later. But the, the data doesn't support that at all. It happens more in the summer because people are outside. It stays lighter later. They're out, they are outside later in the day. Um, there's more parties, people tend to have more free time, they're on vacation, they're celebrating, they're with people, right? They're more social engagement, they're with people that maybe they know, but they don't know that well. So that's actually the reason for that one. So just an interesting, interesting fact on that one. Victims of sexual assault um, <clears throat> are three times more prone to depression, six times more prone to PTSD, 13 times more likely to abuse alcohol, 26 times more likely to abuse drugs and four times more likely to contemplate suicide. And across the board, most suffer from um, intense feelings of guilt, self-doubt, anxiety, and fear that kind of plague them for years. Yeah. If I can ask about data, can you talk about, is there and to what degree is there a connection between being a victim of sexual abuse and becoming a perpetrator yourself later in life? I realize that is it. Yeah. 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 Let me think on that for a second and come back. I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't have hard data on that for you. Okay. So I'm, I have an idea. Let me come back to that. I realize yeah. I'm asking you about a kind of different topic. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. It's a good question though. It's a good question. Um, just a couple things really quickly on, on causation. There's a million and one theories out there about why, 
why sexual assault and rape and, and sexual harassment happens, why it happens by certain people and not others. Um, just a couple of things just to push back again on some of the myths that are out there. Um, some, substance abuse is not a cause for someone to commit sexual assault, but it does increase the likelihood that it's related. Um, again, mental illness is not the cause. Um, uh, one thing that they have looked at in the data across a number of people who have, who have raped women um, and committed crimes of sexual assault against women, um, the one common trait that comes to the surface is narcissism in every single one. It's narcissism. A big factor is, and I'm going to talk about this more when we get into the church, but it's gender roles. Um, and just this idea of what value do we or do we not place on women, not even so much as individuals but as a society, that question. Um, and we have this imbalance where men, in general, in our society, we do live in a patriarchal culture. The United States is considered a patriarchal culture. Um, and so men are kind of taught to be tough, um, and women are taught to be more submissive, even even outside of church circles. That's just sort of general gender roles. There's obviously exceptions to that. But um, and in patriarchal cultures, um, male privilege is a real thing, um, and there are more frequent and higher incidents of rape in patriarchal cultures. Um, and part of that, uh, there's a number of reasons for that, but one of the reasons, too, is that those sitting in power making laws about these things tend to all be men. Um, and just back to the clothing thing for a minute, um, they did a study, again, straight from Janice, but they did a study in a couple of years ago in a California prison system, <laughs> well, I can't imagine doing the state, but where they interviewed a number of people who were in prison for rape. And they asked them about how they chose their victims. Was it what they were wearing? Was it how they looked? Was it how they talked to you or how they interacted with you? And hands down across the board, the majority of them said, it's because they were there. It's availability. And so one of the very um, dangerous things, and again, we can talk about this more in the discussion if you want, about the myth that what women are wearing causes them to be sexually harassed or sexually assaulted at higher levels. The, the, the less clothing you're wearing, um, the greater your likelihood of being harassed or assaulted. Um, across the board, time and time and time and time again, the data doesn't support that. Um, I have a, I can get to it really quickly. Hang on. There's an art exhibit that was done out of the University of Kansas, I believe, um, called, I think it's called What Were You Wearing? Or What Was She Wearing? Where, it's called What Were You Wearing? Where they interviewed all these women who had been victims of, I think these are all sexual assault, actually, and asked them what they were wearing when they were assaulted, and they put together this traveling art exhibit. It's not their exact clothing that they were wearing, but if a woman said, I was wearing khaki pants and a red shirt, you know, in a, a cotton red sleeveless shirt. They kind of pull this. Um, and, but you just see, <laughs> um, and, and it's really, you can Google that study, you can see some other pictures. It's really interesting um, that 
you know, we have this idea that, oh, well, she kind of was asking for it. She wasn't wearing any clothing. But the reality is, is if that was true, then women would be raped on the beach all the time. And they would never be raped in the middle of winter in Massachusetts when we're wearing 400 layers of clothes. And that's just not true. That's not how the data doesn't support that. Um, and one of the dangerous things about that myth is, for women is that, it, is that it gives women the impression that it gives women the idea that as long as I'm covered up, I'm safe. And that's not true either. And so it gives a false sense of security and a false sense of women for women. You know, while I was wearing uh, jeans and a turtleneck and a ski mask and a parka, I'm safe. But that, and so it, it's, it's actually, that myth is really damaging not only for men, but obviously for women as well. All right. Okay. So along with, and time's up, uh, <clears throat> 2017 brought, another, brought along another hashtag, which was Church2, hashtag Church2. It was started by Hannah Pask. Um, she is an ex-evangelical who was raised in the homeschool and purity movement um, communities. Um, and this, one, this hashtag provided a space for men and for women to share their stories of sexual harassment and assault, specifically within the church. Um, the Protestant church watched from afar in the 90s um, as the Catholic church in America just exploded with charges of sexual abuse at the hands of many priests and bishops, and there were huge cover-up scandals. Um, however, Church 2 has served as a, really a floodlight on the problems of misogyny and harassment within the Protestant church as well. Um, the church has major issues with sex. Um, anyone outside of the church would say that the things the conservative church is most concerned with are things related to sex and sexual purity, abortion, premarital sex, homosexuality. However, we are willing to call out others and hold others to a certain standard that we are not requiring of ourselves. And Church 2 has, we knew that before, uh, but Church 2 has made that really obvious. Um, this is this is deeply problematic, which is the understatement of the year, but it's also a significant apologetics issue. The church has lost so much credibility. The gospel of Jesus Christ has lost so much credibility because of this. If you do a search for Church 2 on Twitter, you'll find stories of, of victims at best being ignored um, and shamed and shunned at worst. While time and time again, the perpetrators, who are very often pastors, elders, or respected members of a church community, um, are defended or excused. Last year, you guys may have heard about this, a pastor at a megachurch um, just in Memphis, actually named Andy Savage, confessed to his congregation that he had sexually assaulted a teenage girl in the youth group um, when he was a youth pastor at a different church 15 years prior. The video of his confession went viral primarily because his confession was met with a standing ovation by the congregation, assumedly praising him for his honesty and bravery in confessing. He was also met with a pat on the back, both literally and figuratively, by the senior pastor who was standing next to him during his confession. More recently, sexual harassment charges against Willow Creek megachurch pastor Bill Hybels um, have completely rocked that church community. Um, causing Hybels to um, hasten his um, planned retirement from the church. He moved his retirement up um, by about six months. 
um, the Board of Elders at Willow Creek came forward with their own apology, stating that when accusations against Hybels originally came to light, that they dealt with the situation in a way that protected Hybels and cast doubt onto the testimonies of the women coming forward. Um, since then, the full elder board, as well as the two pastors who were set to take over for Hybels, um, have all stepped down. Uh, last year as well, Paige Patterson was removed as the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary after numerous recordings and excuse me recordings and reports surfaced, wherein he made inappropriate uh, comments to and about underage women and encouraged women to stay in abusive marriages. The Southern Baptist Convention has continued to struggle with serious allegations against uh, the male leadership in their denomination, and I'm sure um, you guys all represent. A variety of denominations, so I'd be curious to, some of you may know more about these things than, than I do. We can talk about that later, too. In the wake of Me Too, women's Bible study author and teacher Beth Moore wrote an article on her ministry's blog calling out the misogyny that she has encountered throughout her ministry career, and I'm sharing an excerpt from it here. This is an extended, this is an extended excerpt here, but this is Beth Moore. I accepted the the peculiarities accompanying female leadership in a conservative Christian world because I chose to believe that, whether or not some of the actions and attitudes seemed godly to me, they were rooted in deep convictions based on passages from 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. Then early October 2016 surfaced attitudes among some key Christian leaders that smacked of misogyny, objectification, an astonishing disesteem of women, and it spread like wildfire. It was just the beginning. I came face-to-face with one of the most demoralizing realizations of my adult life. Scripture was not the reason for the colossal disregard and disrespect of women among many of these men. It was only the excuse. Sin was the reason. Ungodliness. About a year ago, I had an opportunity to meet a theologian I'd long respected, I'd read virtually every book he'd written. I'd looked so forward to getting to share a meal with him and talk theology. The instant I met him, he looked me up and down, smiled approvingly, and said, you're better looking than blank. He didn't leave it blank. He filled it in with the name of another woman Bible teacher. These examples may seem fairly benign in light of recent scandals of sexual abuse and sexual assault coming to light, but the attitudes are growing from the same dangerously malignant root. Many women have experienced horrific abuses within the power structures of our Christian world. Being any part of shaping misogynistic attitudes, whether or not they result in criminal behaviors, is sinful and harmful and produces terrible fruit, end quote. Um, That's not the entire letter, but that's a portion of it. So why is this so often the response in the church, especially in evangelical churches? Um, the church at large, and the evangelical church in particular, has a pretty bad rap when it comes to women. Um, And this is not just a problem for the women. Um, This is a problem for everyone who cares about the gospel of Jesus Christ, because, as I said before, it's a massive apologetics issue. Um, The gospel is only good news if it is good news for everyone. Otherwise, it's obsolete. I'm going to talk really quickly Um, about a few kind of patterns um, and factors that I just think are are unhelpful uh, patterns that exist in the church today that kind of lead us to this point. This is is not a lecture on the difference between egalitarian and complementarian teaching. 
Um, but I just do want to comment on this, and I know I'm sure we have people sitting in all kinds of different church traditions. But the first is the ripple effect of complementarian teaching. Um, what I mean by that are churches where um, uh, scriptural authority, teaching authority is given to men, that women are not... Um, allowed to teach publicly women or they're, excuse me they're not allowed to teach men publicly they are often allowed to teach women and children um, women don't serve on elder boards things like that women in leadership issues in the church um, part of the pro- and again I don't I don't want to do a dive into the theological basis of this I just want to kind of pinpoint um, that, that there is a ripple effect um, from from this teaching um, that places um Men in all the places of authority in a church, um, and the female ver- voice very often is not heard. Again, whether that's in regard to policies or creating culture, tone, discipline, whatever. Um, it creates kind of a culture of, even if it's not directly said, um, that, that men are always right. Um, it puts women in a place of being submissive. Um, again, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but the ripple effect can be just this undergirded belief that women are inferior, that they have no voice. Um, it takes away some of their God-given, I would argue, dominion and authority. Um, in, in some places, in more extreme places, women really are not treated as fully human in their own right um, as co-heirs of the kingdom. Um, I do think it's possible for complementarian churches to... Um, to actively work against these these ripple effects. Um, I I haven't seen any churches yet that do it, but I think it is possible. The second is the ripple effect of modesty teaching. Again, I don't want to totally slam modesty teaching because I think that um, it's something that all Christians should think about. However, for the most part, again, I know there's exceptions to this, for the most part, in the church, um, teaching on modesty has been directed at specifically at women, um, and by implication, then women are responsible um, for men's behavior and actions. So it puts men in the place of being victims um, to women's clothing choices. Um, It makes girls and women 100% responsible for men being tempted and acting out on sexual impulses, whether that's Um, lust, masturbation, objectification, or actually harassment or assault. Um, This is a huge double standard. Um, And and I really want to put out here, first of all, it assumes that women can never be uh, tempted sexually, which of course isn't true. Um, And I just feel like this is also so so demeaning to men because it's it's dehumanizing to men. Because it's what it's saying is that men are not fully human. It's saying that men are animals with animal instincts that they don't have control over. And that's just not true. Um, And it's a really, um, yeah, it's just really minimizing to who God has created men to be as well. In Galatians, Paul says, For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We have completely let men off the hook. of their responsibility to manifest these characteristics. Patience, self-control, kindness, love. Um, That, we have kind of feminized the fruit of the Spirit in a long ways, in a lot of ways, but but that word from Paul is a word for all Christians. 
that is not a word for women. That is a word for all Christians. And so, um, but, but we don't ex- we don't expect that from men in the same way we do from women, and that's um, really unbiblical. Um, the third area is just kind of poor teaching on what it means to be human, um, including our sexuality. Um, dehumanization, as I said already, of women and of men. Um, it, it makes women out, they, it can make women out to be primarily sexual objects, which is that is not primarily what women are, and it turns men into primarily kind of um, animals driven by instinct, and that is not primarily what men are either. Um, and there's just a lot of cultural voices right now telling us, talking about humanity. I mean, even the whole realm of artificial intelligence and robots um, and things like that. What does it mean to be a human being anymore? And the church should really be leading the conversation on this because we have something really important to say. But most churches tend to be fairly quiet on that. Um, Number four is pornography and talk a lot about this. If this is something you're interested in, um, my colleague Joshua is doing a fantastic lecture this afternoon on pornography. He presents it really well. He's really winsome. He's a great person to hear from on this topic. Um, but, but but pornography, especially more um, hardcore pornography, just normal. it normalizes male dominance, um, and it normalizes oppression of and violence against women. Um, and then lastly, <clears throat> just, just unhelpful use of scripture. <laughs> um, using scripture in ways that in at worst are just wrong and in other ways are unhelpful. Um, you know, qu- quoting things like um, scriptures around two women, two victims, excuse me, not to women, but to victims, around um, forgiveness, around, about turning the other cheek, about, well, you know, Jesus suffered. We suffer. All those things are true, um, but are very often very poorly applied um, to this situation. There's a verse in Jeremiah that I just feel like cuts to the core of this. Jeremiah 6.14, um, he says, Jeremiah says this, they dress the wound of my people as if it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. I just find that very convicting, a very convicting verse. Um, and we have done that in the church in this area. Um, I Just as an example of this, I have a friend who told me a story this happened when she was in her 20s, I think, or in college, um, about uh, she had been sexually harassed on the street. A man was that she didn't know was just kind of catcalling her and kind of kept going and wouldn't stop, was talking to her on the street. She was telling her friend this story, um, who the friend had had a man yell something lewd at her on the street. And my friend said, I told her that sometimes, as long as there are other people around and it's safe, I yell back, and it usually shuts them up. Um, And she said, and I did it because um, my mother had told me to do that. My mother had told me that I didn't have to put up with men yelling at me on the street in the back of them. And this friend said to her, well, I don't think your mother understands how we're supposed to treat our enemies. Okay, so that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Did Jesus say turn the other cheek? Yes, he did. (laughs) Did he say lay down and take abuse. No, he didn't. Okay, so that's the type of thing I'm talking about, of a, a scripture that is true, but it's used in really just poor and unhelpful ways. Um, 
now I'm just going to look at, um, I, w- I want to actually go to scripture here and look at some examples from both the Old Testament and the New Testament um, that, that hopefully can just inform us a little bit on what both as, as individual people, as Christians, and as the church can just help kind of frame how, how should we be thinking about this? What does the Bible have to say about this? Um, and I'm going to give you kind of four things, again, quickly from the Old Testament. Um, the first is the idea of, we talk a lot about original sin, and I just want to talk about the idea of original goodness. Um, at the beginning of the biblical narrative, um, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Um, we talk, um, yeah, this idea of original goodness is just as important as that of original sin, I think. Um, the inherent nature of man and woman is goodness. Um, they both have value before God. Men and women both have value before God as his image bearers and as co-heirs of the kingdom, both of them. Um, the second is also comes from um, the early chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 2.18, it says, the scripture says, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And this is a, this is a verse that has often been used to, in different ways um, to support subordination of women below men. But the Hebrew word that's used there, the word azer for helper, the word that's translated as helper, um, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar at all. Um, some of you may know more about this than I do. Um, but from the reading I've done and talking with people, it's not actually the most accurate translation of the word. And the interesting thing is that that word, azer, appears 21 times in the Old Testament. And almost every single time it's used, it's used to describe God as the helper of his people. Um, and very often it's used to describe God as the helper of his people um, in, in a military way, kind of with a reference to military power and military strength. One example of this is from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 33, where Moses says, Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, and the sword of your triumph? Okay, it's the same Hebrew word that's used to describe woman in Genesis 2. Um, power and strength are not characteristics that the church is often comfortable placing on women, but it seems that God was very intentional about that. Um, the third area, again, coming out of Genesis, is just the idea of sexuality in general. Sexuality is part of what it means to be human. It's inherent to the nature of humanity um, before the fall. Our sexuality is not a result of the fall. God put that in us as part of the original goodness. Um, it's not being, being a sexual being is not sinful in and of itself. Um, and in fact, a, a healthy manifestation of our sexuality is, is honoring to God. It's honoring to how we were created. And again, just not a concept that we tend to be comfortable talking about much. Um, and then the last area from the Old Testament is just this idea of the theme of justice. God is a God of justice. He hates violence, and he repeatedly calls for protection of the weak and persecution of violators. The Exodus is all about freeing the captive Hebrew slaves from violence and oppression. Uh, and, oppression. Um, and God did not deal kindly with Pharaoh. Um, the Old Testament tells us that God is a God who sees, and he is a God who hears the cries of his people, and he responds with power and might. Um, God is all about standing with the powerful against, excuse me, with the powerless against the powerful. Um, this is a really strong biblical ethic that runs all the way through the Bible, both the Old and New Testament. Um, some examples from the New, on the New Testament side, 
I think that, that give us some perspective on this is first um, that Jesus is referred to as the Prince of Peace. He distinguishes over and over again between the kingdoms of the world, marked by the rule of man, uh, the rule of power, the rule of oppression, um, and he ushers in the kingdom of heaven. That is one of restoration. Um, Jesus teaches the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. Um, Jesus brought an, an, what people often call an upside-down kingdom. I know somebody else who refers to it as the right-side-up kingdom. Um, that is so different from the world we live in now. Um, his kingdom is one where those who were historically weak or on the margins are lifted up, such as women, children, slaves, foreigners, sick, the sexually unclean, um, Tamar, the woman at the well. Um, I heard a comment, someone made a comment recently that kind of stuck with me that said that if you go through the Gospels and you read Jesus' miracles, the people who had the front row seat to Jesus' miracles almost every single time were the people that live on the margins. They were the ones that got to see um, that up close and personal. Um, Just another example from the New Testament and from Jesus' life um, is just, just the example, the model of his ministry and his friendship with women. Um, Jesus taught women. He traveled with them. Uh, Luke 8 recounts that there were many women who traveled with him and the disciples. Again, these women had a front row seat to the work that Jesus was doing. Um, And he used them in his parables. We are still talking about the woman at the well 2,000 years later. And she is a teacher to us. Um, Jesus performed miracles for them. He touched them. Um, so I think about um, in, in some conservative Christian circles where women shouldn't even be touched, right? Jesus touched women, um, and his physical touch brought healing every single time, not destruction. Um, in all of the one-on-one examples we see in the Gospels between women and Jesus, the women walk away from their encounter with him in a more elevated position than before they met him. Again, the woman at the well, the woman who was bleeding, the woman with the alabaster jar of perfume. They walk away restored in many cases, healed in other cases, or given a place of honor and respectability that they didn't have previously. Um, he, we know he had a very close friendship with Mary, with Martha, as, where, as well as Mary Magdalene. Um, and then there are other women who are named as well, Joanna and Susanna. So Jesus, had, Jesus was among women. He had friends. Um, and one of the things that's very significant to me in the Gospels is that Jesus not only listened to women, but he believed women. And not only that, but he placed them in his story in such a way that they needed to be believed in order for the story to unfold. Why were there women at the tomb and not men? It makes no sense. Their word meant nothing at the time. And yet, they play a crucial role in the resurrection story of Jesus. Um, Pastor and author Tim Keller um, actually refers to Mary Magdalene as the first Christian. Um, because she was the first person at the tomb. She was the first person to see the risen Christ and to call him Lord. I think that's really powerful. Um, And even a bit later in the New Testament, Paul. Paul gets bad rap with women. Um, I just finished taking a a graduate-level New Testament survey course. I have a much deeper appreciation for Paul than I did before. Um, 
But women were absolutely instrumental in the growth of the early church as teachers and as prophets. Um, Paul had so many women that traveled with him and taught with him that he gave responsibility to that he had expectations of. Um, so so I, am, I am very sympathetic to people both outside of the church and within the church who feel that um, the, the whole of the Bible, the whole of Christianity is misogynistic. I'm really sympathetic to that. But when I, read the, when I read the Bible, the Old and the New Testament, all I see all the way through is a God who loved and praised and elevated and honored women. God was very, the God of the Bible is very much for women. So to close us up here, talk for a long time. Um, kind of with the Bible as our guide, what should our response be? Where do we go from here? And I'm, I'm thinking about this less on an individual level and more on a corporate level. As the church, the church is a dumpster fire, as they say right now, in regards to this issue. I'm sure there are some churches and some people out there doing good work in this area. I know, I know of some. I know that there are. But for the most part, it's not, it's not pretty. Um, and, so, and so what can we do? Where do we go with this? Um, and what I want to do here just quickly is suggest three movements. Um, and I'm calling movements the movements because this is not where the church is for the most part on this issue right now. So there needs to be some movement to get there. Um, and the first is, not surprising, a movement towards truth and repentance. Um, the Bible tells us that you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Telling the truth is freedom. Is freedom. You feel like you're going to die, but it is freedom. Um, the church needs to acknowledge and repent. Um, not only the misogyny and the harassment and assault that has happened under its banner, um, but for the part it has played in defending and empowering perpetrators and for shaming and blaming victims. Um, throughout Scripture, God is deeply committed to truth. Um, he is truth. That is who he is. Um, he tells us not only the truth of who he is and what he's done, but he tells us the truth of reality. Um, and Jesus repeatedly challenged people to look honestly at the truth of their hearts and their own lives and to make both an account of this and accountability for these things. Um, moving from darkness to light, this is the business that Jesus is in. Um, our tendency as humans is to hide. Okay, Again, right out of the gates in Genesis, it's one of the first sins after um, Adam and Eve encounter the serpent and eat from the apple, um, what do they do? They hide. They hide from God. And what does God do? He calls it out. Where are you? He says. He knows where they are. He doesn't need an answer to that question. He wants them to answer that question. Where are you? Um, he does the same thing with Jonah as well. Um, Anna talked a little bit about Jonah yesterday going down, 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 down. Yep, he does it with Jonah. Um, and then the questions of Jesus. My colleague Dick Kyes has done some amazing work just looking at the questions of Jesus. Jesus asked so many questions to people, and it's a way, it's a way of getting at truth. Um, we are all sinners, very far from grace. Um, and we are only lifted out of that because of the mercy of Christ. Um, and when we as individuals and as the church corporately don't do our own part, um, it's as if we're above the need of God's grace in the need of his justice. Um, throughout the scriptures, God stands with the victim, the minority, the poor, and the ostracized every single time. There's no place in scripture where he stands on the side of the oppressor. None. And when Christians and God's church stand alongside the oppressor 
and those who have abused power. And again, I am not saying that there is not a place for forgiveness, that there is not a place for reconciliation, and that there is not a place for, for these people in God's church. I am. Um, but when they stand alongside and either approving of or turning a blind eye to abuse of power, um, again, we're negating the gospel of Christ and the very nature of the kingdom of God. Okay? Jesus told the woman of the well, Go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. Stop. Turn. The second movement is one towards lament. Um, Most Protestant and evangelical churches are terrible at this. Uh, This is a place where I think the Catholic Church and Episcopal and Anglican churches just do a better job with lament because it's built into their liturgy. Um, I know that um, I do know some churches who have kind of made some moves to incorporate lament into their services, which are weekly services, which I think is great. Um, lament is an extremely both appropriate and biblical response to the brokenness of the world, um, and sexual violence falls under that category. Um, the Bible tells us that we should lament the things that are not in line with the kingdom of God. Um, again, my colleague Ben has done some helpful work on lament. He might be talking about this a bit tomorrow. I'm not sure, but or later today. I don't know what day it is anymore. Later today. Um, and one of the things that's been helpful uh, in Ben's work is he says lament is not complaining horizontally to someone who can't do anything about it. Okay? It's not complaining about a problem. But it's, it's taking our complaints vertically, directly to God. And in so doing that, we acknowledge that he's the only one who actually has the power to do something about it. That's what lament is. We can cry out to God because we believe that he has the power and the desire and the will to move and to do something. Um, we lament the sexual sin and the violence against the body, but also the misappropriation of power and of manipulation and of not protecting those who are vulnerable, of silencing voices that are not our own. Um, we lament for those li- that, for lives that have been irrevocably changed. I mean, the statistics of people who have, have withstood sexual assault of just such higher rates of of depression, anxiety, drug and alcohol abuse, PTSD. Those are real things that we should also lament. And this is something that we really need to, people need to do individually, but also corporately. Um, The church is the bride of Christ. Um, And so we need to lament the ways that we have not protected and advocated for his people and his body. And lastly, this is going to sound weird, but I want to say that the third movement should be one towards celebration. And what I mean by that is celebration of the Me Too movement, celebration of these uh, stories that are coming out. There, we should be glad for this moment in our cultural, our collective history. Um, as difficult as all of this is, this isn't just a victory for women, but for everyone. It's a victory for everyone that systems of sexual oppression and violence are being called out and that those who have been in places of abuse um, are being called to account. Francis Schaeffer talked about, um, really called Christians to be co-belligerents. And what that means is we should be lining up shoulder to shoulder with other people who are fighting for the same things we're fighting for, even if they're not Christians, even if we don't believe everything that they stand for. Um, I know people who are like, yeah, I, you know, I hate all this stuff, but I just can't really get behind the Me Too movement because it's all it's just like kind of crazy feminist, and I don't know, and that's just not who I am, and I don't want to associate myself with that. And I just want to say, no, you're not that precious. 
Like, it, it, we should be, um, like, we should get on board with the environmentalists. I don't care if they're crazy atheists who worship trees. They're, they, are, they are protecting something that as Christians we should be protecting too because God created this world. Um, and, so, and so we should be, we should as the church and as individuals as Christians be celebrating this. Um, and this, uh, there was a quote in the, in the, from the New York Times by a guy who said that focusing on this issue would be consistent with a biblical ethic of standing with the powerless against the powerful. That is a very consistent biblical thing. Um, can you imagine what kind of message that would send to the watching world if the church took these steps in the midst of the Metoo movement? Um, okay, I want to close here. I've gone way too long, but I just want to close with um, a quote that I probably, I probably, will, I've read it so many times, I probably won't cry this time reading it. For the first like million times I read it, I teared up because I found it quite powerful. It is a quote. Um, from <clears throat> Dorothy Sayers. You know who Dorothy Sayers is? She's amazing. Um, uh, writer, a uh, Christian uh, uh, writer and activist. Um, she has written a number of things. I would strongly recommend her murder mystery series if you haven't read them. Um, but she, in 1938, okay, she wrote a book called Are Women Human? And this is a passage from that book, and she is talking, in this, in this quote, she's talking about Jesus. Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were the first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no easy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about woman's nature. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.